two of far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, with native honor clad, in naked majesty seemed lords of all, and worthy seemed. For in their looks divine, the image of their glorious maker shone, truth, wisdom, sanctitude severe and pure, severe, but in true filial freedom placed. Earthborn, perhaps, not spirits, yet to heavenly spirits bright little inferior, whom my thoughts pursue with wonder, and could love, so lively shines in them divine resemblance, and such grace the hand that formed them on their shape hath poured. With goddess-like demeanor forth Eve went, and from about her shot darts of desire into all eyes to wish her still in sight. On she came, led by her heavenly maker, though unseen, and guided by his voice. Grace was in all her steps, heaven in her eye, in every gesture, dignity and love. Nor are thy lips ungraceful, sire of men, nor tongue ineloquent, for God on thee abundantly his gifts hath also poured, inward and outward both, his image fair. Speaking or mute, all comeliness and grace attends thee, and each word, each motion's forms. Simplicity and spotless innocence, so passed they naked on, nor shunned the sight of God or angel, for they thought no ill. So hand in hand they passed, the loveliest pair that ever since in love's embraces met. Adam, the goodliest man of men since born his sons, the fairest of her daughters, Eve. Morning. How's everybody doing? Cold hands, warm heart, you know, that's what they say. So, you never know what you're going to get. So, um, anyway, we are into the second week of our sermon series called Created to Need. And each week, if you're joining us for the first time, each week we are looking at a different core need of the human condition, things that are essential to what it means to be a human being, not things that we merely desire, but things that we need to be human beings. This week, our focus is going to be on our need for dignity. So we just listened to a reading from uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost, the excerpts that focus on the creation of Adam and Eve. Some of you listen to that and you say, oh, I just can't wait to read Milton. Others of you listened to it and said, this is why I've never read Milton. But (laughs) I think Milton does a fantastic job of capturing the dignity of Adam and Eve. I mean, there is just such beauty and poignancy, I think, in any case, in some of the things that he says there. Listen to what he says, again, just to capture some of these terms. Describing Eve, grace was in all her steps, in every gesture, dignity and love. And then of Adam, inward and outward both, God's image fair. 
So you have this glorious description of Adam and Eve in, in their kind of created perfection, in their, the fullness of their dignity is what Milton gives us. And dignity, as the way that's framed by Milton, as we're going to see the way that's framed by Scripture, has to do with honor, with worthiness. It's different than love. Love is something that uh, can be poured upon someone that is unworthy, someone that doesn't have honor. We can love the unlovely, but to possess dignity means that we possess some measure of worthiness or honor. We are worthy of being honored. When we strip someone of their dignity, we are stripping someone of some core elements of their humanity. And so to take away someone's dignity is to dehumanize them. And so our innate desire to preserve our own dignity, to possess dignity, to pursue dignity, our desire to be worthy, our desire to be honored, and even more importantly, to be honorable, this is not a base or petty thing we're going to see here in a moment from Scripture. This is what God has made us for and created us to be. So we're going to start with the first of the seven needs that we're going to be looking at, we're going to start with this need for dignity because this is where the Bible starts. One of the primary aims of the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, is to convey or establish the inherent dignity of the human being. So I want to help us see from Genesis chapter 1 what we were created for, what we were created to be, and through this to, more under, to understand more fully why dignity is an essential aspect of our humanity, why we need it so desperately, and more importantly, most importantly, how we can find dignity. It's an elusive thing in our world. I mean, two basic parts to this sermon, just so you can kind of orient yourself to where we are this morning. The first part of the sermon, we're going to look at the Bible's account of dignity, how we were created with it and how we lost it. That's the first part of the sermon, looking at Genesis chapters 1, and then we're going to peek over in Genesis chapter 3. And then the last part of the sermon, we'll look at the way that God restores human dignity in Christ. We'll look back at this passage that Pastor Josh led us and that we read together from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So we're going to start with Genesis 1 this morning. This is the story of Adam and Eve, the creation of the world, the creation of Adam and Eve. The creation of Adam and Eve, it's a, it's a universal story, Adam and Eve's story in many ways. It's not just a story of beginnings that we read uh, in Genesis chapter 1. It is that, but it's also a story that is exemplary of just kind of, of every man, the way that each of us navigates kind of our existence and life. We're going to see that here as we read the story of Adam and Eve. If you are visiting, you're perhaps not a Christian this morning, and you're checking all of this out, thinking about what Christianity articulates as the core human needs, I invite you, uh, like you did perhaps if you were here last week, to listen in. Not even yet asking you to believe it, I'm asking you to consider it and to think about how the Bible puts together and explains the innate sense that we all have that we, that we need dignity, that we desire dignity, and where dignity comes from. All right, so Genesis chapter 1, if you want to make your way there in your Bible, if you have a hard time finding Genesis 1, I don't know what to do for you. It's the first 
text, the first page in the Bible. So Genesis chapter 1, we're not going to read the entire chapter, but what we're going to focus on in Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of the biological aspects of life, right? So Genesis chapter 1 is moving through all the the creation of the stars and the heavens and whatnot, but I want to focus our attention specifically on the places where God creates biological life. So I'll direct us as we move through it, but stand together with me, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start... Uh, with verse 11, all right? So God, we'll we'll read verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the rest of the chapter is moving out through the explanation of what God did. So let's start with verse 11, and then just follow as I direct us. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which there is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now we're going to skip up to verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Continuing on. In verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. So last week we looked, if you were here, we looked at Psalm 104. And Psalm 104 we saw as it put forward humanity, Psalm 104 relativized humanity with respect to the rest of creation. Psalm 104 placed humanity in and among the other creatures of the world. And so just as all the other creatures need to be cared for and taken care of by God, so also man needs to be taken care of uh, by God. Humanity stands in need of God just like all the other creatures. So in Psalm 104, we don't see the uniqueness or the distinctiveness of humanity. We see the neediness and the creatureliness of humanity. But Genesis 1, Genesis 1 doesn't contradict Psalm 104, but it moves in a different direction. Genesis 1, the focus is not to show what's common about humanity with the rest of the creatures that God has made, but to show what is unique about humanity. Genesis 1, as we've seen, it moves through the creation of the world. It it discusses both the creation of non-biological life, and then our focus here this morning is looking at the creation of biological life. And if you've read Genesis 1 before, or perhaps this is the first time that you've heard it read, there might have been a, there's a reoccurring phrase that may have stood out to you. When When God is making all of the biological life, 
in verses 11 all the way then through to 25 as he's making the plants, he's making the sea creatures, he's making the birds, he's making the beasts of the field. There's this reoccurring phrase that, that is meant to, to draw our attention. Everything God makes is made according to what? To its kind. Rhymes with sign, starts with K, it's like little kids. So like kind, that's right. So it, it, everything is made according to its kind. So what does this mean? Now, the Bible isn't written to, uh, to answer uh, contemporary taxonomies of species, right? This is an, is an ancient book. But what does it mean that everything is made according to its kind? It means that the beasts of the field are made to be like each other. There's something that when you look at the beasts of the field, you're like, yep, that's a beast of the field and that's a beast of the field. And though they're all different, they all are made kind of according to a certain grouping, Right? The birds of the air all have their distinct features that make them birds, and the things that swarm in the sea have all their distinct things that make them fish, or whatever it might be, that things are made to be like each other. Right? They're made to be part of, kind of a kind or a, a class. They're grouped together. And all of this is a setup, I think. The author is setting us up here for Genesis 1.26, because as we've been Encountering the creation of all the living creatures that God has made, they've all been made according to their kind, with reference to each other, right? Grouped together. But we get to Genesis 1.26, and based upon what we've read in the prior verses, we might think that when God gets to the creation of humanity, we would read that God said, let us make humanity according to their kind. But God doesn't make humanity according to to our kind. He doesn't place us with the beasts of the field, certainly not the birds of the air or the fish of the sea or the plants. We're not made according to our kind. We're made distinctly and uniquely amongst all the things that God has made. We're made according to the image and likeness of God. So the beasts of the field are made to be like other beasts, the plants of the of the earth are made to be like the other plants. The birds are made to be like other birds. The, the, the sea creatures are made to be like the other sea creatures. But humanity is not made to be like anything like that. Humanity is made to be like God. This word image that we read, when we think of an image, if I were to say that such and such is an image or I have an image, you, would, you and I would tend to think most immediately of some sort of photograph or a printed uh, uh, picture, perhaps a drawing or a painting or a, a photo. But in the ancient days, the term image wouldn't have meant that. Right? There wouldn't have been photography to produce images that they would send out to all of their loved ones at Christmas, right? So with the term image doesn't convey the idea to them what it would have meant to us. The term image actually is a reference. It's a reference to an idol, so you may have, if you know your Bible well enough or if you've read through parts of the Bible, you might recall that the Lord, as he brings his people together and calls them together, he instructs them that they are to make no graven images. This is the same word that's used here in Genesis 1, 26, that, that an image is a figure. It's something that's made a three-dimensional object. It's, it's an image or an idol that is used to represent something else. And so they were used often in pagan worship. And so in the nations that would come to surround Israel, the, 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 the pagan people would worship God, their gods, through images, right? They would 
create idols of stone or wood or silver or gold if they had it. They would make graven images. And the the function of the image or the idol was to direct the worship of the worshiper towards the unseen God. The image wasn't meant to replace the God. The image wasn't necessarily the God. The image was a representation that focused worship of the unseen God. So, God forbids, as we would read later on throughout the uh, story that unfolds uh, in Genesis and beyond, but God forbids the making of graven images. He doesn't want his people to make idols, which of course is understandable. He doesn't want his people to be worshiping these false gods or these pagan gods, so that makes sense. But God also clearly instructs his people to make no graven images of himself, So it's not that just that God doesn't want graven images of Baal or Asherah or Chamash. He doesn't just want to refrain. He doesn't want his people to refrain from just making graven images of the false gods. He doesn't want his people to make graven images of the true God. So why is that? Why does he not want his people to make a graven image of himself? The Jewish prophets would later go on to to mock the idols of the pagan gods by noting the fact that the idols of the pagan gods were mute. They couldn't hear, they couldn't see, they couldn't speak, they couldn't move, they couldn't smell. They were dead idols. And they would say that the living God, the living God, he is, he is a, a God who sees, who knows, who, who breathes and who hears. He is a, a God that can't be represented by a by a stone or by gold or even the greatest craft of human hands. What would idols like that say about the true and living God? No human craft is able to make an idol of the living God. Every attempt that we would make with the best of our cunning and of our art to create some representation of God would fall short. And so God says, make no idol of me. Whatever you make of me is going to fall short. But God's hands are able to make what human hands cannot. It's the point of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That God has made for himself a living idol. God doesn't want us to make an idol because our efforts to make an idol of God are going to fall short. God has already made for himself an idol. We are the idols, the images of God. We are the visible representation of the invisible God. So that when all of creation wants to direct its worship to God, creation can look at the human being and see the glory and the dignity and the wonder of God. To be a human being, then, is to be endowed with inestimable dignity and worth. Verse 28, right before we stopped reading, but in Genesis 1, 28, after God has made, the cre- has made Adam and Eve, verse 28, and God blessed them. Right? God, he makes his image. He makes his own graven, living, breathing, moving, hearing, seeing idol. And he blesses it. And we read to the end of Genesis chapter 1, and God has said all along, as he's been making things, it was good, it was good, it was good. But when he crowns creation with humanity, 
he says, it's very good. It's very good. A human being is the crowning achievement of all that God has made to convey God's dignity, God's power, God's worth, God's honor, and God's value. And this is why the Christian faith insists that no matter your skin color, your socioeconomic status, your education, your cognitive abilities, your size, your intelligence, your age, your health, your political allegiance, your religion or lack thereof, if you are a human being, you bear the image of God and you have dignity. Because human dignity is sourced not in humanity disconnected from God, but human dignity is sourced in God himself and has been granted to us as a gift of his grace. Now, if the story of Adam and Eve ended right here, and if our story ended right here, everything would be nice and tidy. But the story doesn't end here, and everything is not nice and tidy. We haven't read Genesis 3 yet. We're going to be reading that in other, uh, other weeks as we come. But I think many of us know the story that happens in Genesis 3. Even if you have not been around church much, you will have heard the story of Adam and Eve and the apple. And I want to just run through it very briefly because the dignity that God bestows upon humanity, that humanity is swept up in, God's own dignity at the end of chapter 1 is marred and replaced with shame by the time we get to the end of Genesis chapter 3. God makes Adam and Eve. He appoints them as the king and queen of the world, his very image, the vice regents and rulers of the earth. They have free reign to do whatever they want in the created world. They are at the top, the apex of all that God has made. God has just one command for them. Just one command. Don't eat from that particular tree. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has called it. He says, don't want you to eat from that tree. You can have any other tree, but don't eat from that tree. Of course, we know the story. They're deceived by the serpent. The serpent comes, convinces them that they would be better. They would have even more dignity. They would become more like God than they already are if they were to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so deceived by the serpent, they eat from the tree. Pick it up in 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, think they know better than God. They disobey God and immediately their eyes are opened and they see their nakedness. And this is more than just recognizing that they don't have clothes on. Their eyes worked before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they now know something about themselves. They see something about themselves, their inadequacy, their shame. Something in them has broken. And their response in their rebellion against God and this fracturing or breaking of their dignity leads them to want to cover themselves up. Right? They want to hide. Who are they hiding from when they cover themselves up? They're hiding from each other. And they're hiding from God even more tragically. The innate sense of dignity that God has granted to them as image bearers of himself has given way to a deep sense of shame. 
They were created with dignity to show all of creation what God is like, but now they have failed in their vocation as accurate image bearers of God, and they are trying to hide the shame of their failure. And the failure of Adam and Eve, the creation into dignity and then the fall into shame, that story is the story of every human being. The story of Adam and Eve beginning, given to us at the front pages of the Bible is the fount and the paradigmatic example of the failure and the shame that each of us lives with to this day. Each of us here in our own way, in our own version, has eaten from forbidden fruit. We know it to be true. We have failed to live up to what we know that we should be. We've been created with dignity. We need dignity. We long for dignity. We want to clothe ourselves with dignity to be all that we know intuitively that we were meant to be. But we have traded our dignity for shame. And so we find ourselves today in the same place as Adam and Eve, to varying degrees, ashamed of who we are, hiding from each other, and hiding from God. This is the story of the human condition. So pray tell, where do we go from here? The Bible mercifully doesn't end in Genesis 3 with humanity bereft of dignity and hiding ourselves in shame. And we're going to get to that, a redemptive note in a moment. But I want to pause here a little bit and think about, invite you to think about the ways that we try to deal with the fact that we have lost some of our dignity and we are living in shame. I think there's two basic, fundamental, and ineffective ways that human beings of all stripes and varieties try to deal with our loss of dignity and the attending shame. The first way, and some do this more than others, but I think the first way is we, we work tirelessly to repair our dignity through achievement. This is not everybody in the room, but this is many of us in the room. We are going to repair our dignity through achievement. This is the high performers and the perfectionists among us. So whether it's sports, whether it's the workplace, whether it's our social life, whether it's our school and our grades, whether it's the perfection of our home, the perfection of our appearance, whether it's Fortnite for the teens, whatever it might be, we are going to achieve and we're going to perform and we're going to restore our dignity through achievement. And our quest for achievement is a quest to outrun our shame, to feel like we are worth something, to convince ourselves that we are honorable, that we matter. You may not have thought about it quite like that before. But I invite you to think about that and ask yourself this question. What do you feel when you don't measure up? What do you feel when you fail? What do you feel when your appearance isn't what it should be? When your grades are not what you had hoped they would be? When you don't succeed in the workplace and the promotion passes you up? What do you feel like when you fail to achieve Is it shame? If it's shame, then that shows that you are running from shame towards dignity. 
You are moving towards success in an effort to alleviate the shame that you feel because of your loss of dignity. But you will exhaust yourself chasing after achievement and perfectionism. You try and you try, but it is never enough. No matter how carefully you cross the T's, no matter how carefully you dot the I's, it is never good enough. Your desire for dignity, the desire to feel like you matter, that's legitimate. There's nothing wrong with that. But you will never find your dignity on the road of performance or perfectionism. It's not because it's a dead-end road. It's because it's a never-ending road. There is no way to reach the end of that road. And if you are trying to find your sense of dignity through your performance, through your achievements, through your perfection, you know how exhausting and unending is that quest. Because no matter how many times you succeed, it just doesn't seem enough. No matter how many times you get your life under control, it just doesn't seem enough. The faster you move down that road, the faster your dignity seems to recede before you into the distant horizon. The damage that we have done to ourselves is beyond our capacity to fix. We can slap the band-aid of perfectionism on it, or we can prop ourselves up with accomplishments, but no amount of performing or perfectionism can restore what was lost. If it could, it would have by now. And it hasn't. Some of you have spent your entire life, your entire life, trying to outperform your sense of shame. It's exhausting. You need to give that up. You need to despair of the idea that you can outrun your shame and reclaim your dignity through performance. So some of us, we are the, this is the achievers, the hard workers. We're trying to outperform our shame to achieve dignity. Others of us, I think, move the opposite direction. We simply assert our dignity while suppressing our shame. We just refuse to get in touch with our shame. We make excuses for ourselves. We refuse to be criticized. We refuse to let others criticize us. We refuse to let ourselves feel bad about ourselves. I think there's something in this that's driving a lot of the self-esteem movement. I think there's a lot of good things that can come out of the self-esteem movement, but there's something fundamentally askew, though, in it and ineffectual. The problem with just insisting upon your own dignity while discounting the, in, the shame that we know that is there is the self-esteem, like the effort to, to assert our self-esteem is, is a failure ultimately because it's circular. We intuitively are insecure about ourselves, right? We all feel that. That's why we all want to cover ourselves up or make excuses or suppress. We're intuitively insecure about ourselves, and so the self-esteem movement invites us to tell ourselves that we shouldn't be insecure, but the problem is the one telling us not to be insecure about ourselves is the one that's insecure about ourselves. It just, it, it doesn't work, right? We know that we are not sufficient to bless ourselves. See, in the creation account, God pronounces the blessing. God says that humanity is very good. 
And all of our broken efforts to assert our own goodness and to tell ourselves what we want to hear just don't ring true. No self-blessing, especially not the self-blessing of someone who's ashamed of themselves, which is what we all are, if we're honest, is going to be convincing. Listen, the reason we feel shame is because we have things to be ashamed about. It's not pretend. We feel ashamed because we have shame. And refusing to acknowledge our brokenness and shame isn't the way to lay hold of dignity, any more than trying to outrun our shame. Israel, as God draws his people together, commissions them in the world to live as representations of himself, uh, fails at it fairly miserably uh, many times, and God sends the Jewish prophets to rebuke the people of Israel. And he rebukes in particular those that are the false prophets, the, the leaders of Israel who won't confront Israel with their sin and their shame. And he critiques these false prophets, these false shepherds, by saying this, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abominations? No, they were not all at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. This is the problem of Israel, is they denied their shame. They didn't know how to blush. Some of us need to blush a bit more, perhaps. Right? We, we suppress our shame. We refuse to get in touch with it because we don't see any hope. Right? We can't see any way out of it, so we just have to suppress it. But but trying to outperform our shame, trying to deny our shame, these are dead-end roads that will not release us from our shame and restore us back into dignity. The gospel offers us renewed dignity even in the midst of our shame and our brokenness. This is the passage that we read earlier in the service from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. You can turn there if you want. It's on page 976 in the Pew Bible. I'm going to be referencing it. We won't read it again, but I'll make a few references to it here. But Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 10, God creates us in dignity. He creates us in honor. We mess it all up. We trade honor for shame. We try our own futile efforts to erase the shame and reclaim our dignity, but we can't figure it out. We know that ultimately these efforts fail. God steps in with the good news of the gospel to restore in us the dignity that was lost. In Ephesians chapter 4, or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4, God being rich in mercy because he loves us, he makes us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. And then look here in verse 6, he raises us up with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly places. Christ comes, the Bible tells us, as the second Adam, the new and the better Adam. Adam, whom God had made, failed in his vocation to image forth God. And so God has sent a second man, a second Adam, to be the image of God and to show the world what God is like. Jesus is the successful second Adam. And Jesus succeeds where Adam fails, and Jesus ascends to the primacy of creation, just as Adam should have done. And Jesus, and here's the glory of the gospel, is that Jesus, in ascending to the primacy, 
Ascending to the seat of honor and dignity, he lifts up with him all who belong to him. And so God has raised us up with Christ, and he has returned us back to the dominion and the dignity and the honor that he intended for humanity to begin with. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and he raises us up with him, restoring to us the dignity. But then look what Jesus does. He doesn't just raise us up, right? We are seated with Christ, returned back to the dignity. But there's some sense in which, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we still know we're broken. Things still aren't quite right. We've been baptized, we've died with Christ, we've, rised with, we've raised with Christ, we've been raised up with Christ to the pinnacle of glory, seated with him, but yet things still aren't quite right, we know in our heart. But look what the gospel does, it doesn't just raise us up to a position of honor, but in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, it's not your own doing, it's a gift from God, not a result of works. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This created in Christ Jesus isn't a reference back to the creation where God makes all human beings. It's a reference to the recreation that we experience through Christ when he takes what was old and broken and begins to make it new. The good news of the gospel is that we will not always be a jangled mix of dignity and shame. The grace of God does not merely cover our shame like a clean bandage over an infected wound. When we come to God, when we confess our inadequacy, we confess our sin, we confess our shame, we throw ourselves upon his mercy that's extended to us in the death and resurrection of Christ, the grace of God begins the sure work of transforming us and healing us so that we once again become untarnished images of the invisible God. God does not deal with our brokenness by overlooking it. God doesn't deal with our brokenness by overlooking it. God deals with our brokenness by fixing it. Not all at once. This is a lifelong process that culminates in the resurrection of the body and the ushering into glory, but surely and certainly, if we have been recreated in Christ Jesus, we are being prepared for the good works that God has marked out for us. And while God does this work in us, in the meantime, here's the glorious thing, is that God invites us to consider ourselves not as we are, still with traces and pockets of shame, but to consider ourselves as he is making us to be, as we will be in the future. When God looks at us, he sees not just what we are, he sees what he's making us in glory. And he wants us to see ourselves that same way. So the Apostle John says this, beloved, we are God's children now. That's what we are. We are really, truly, if we are in Christ, we are God's children now. It's dignity in that. We're God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. It's okay. We're not all that God has promised us to be yet. But then this is what John says. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. 
we can think of ourselves now as we are with honesty because we know what God in his grace is making us in the future. We will always need grace, but here's the good news of the gospel. We will not always need mercy. We will not always need forgiveness. The pronouncement that God has made over humanity that we are very good has been made over us again in faith and will be made over us again in reality when he has finished his work. We sang this morning, the choir helped us sing uh, that, that, that line about God, you are good. But when God is done with his work in us, he will say of us, you are good. That's the hope of the gospel. And he says it now over us in faith. The transforming power of grace is that God is even now making us into the kind of people who will one day no longer need mercy. Dignity from first to last, from creation to recreation, has always been a gift. It was given to us gratuitously by God when we were made from the dust of the ground, and it is given to us again gratuitously by God when he restores in us the image that, we lo that was lost. It cannot be merited. It cannot be earned. We are forever creatures in need of dignity that God bestows. But God does bestow it. And we don't need to try to outrun our shame. We don't need to try to outwork our shame. We don't need to try to hide our shame. God has granted us dignity as his image bearers, and he is restoring that dignity and that image in Christ. So this frees us, this releases us to be honest about our shame because we know that in Christ, our story doesn't end in shame. So we can say, I'm not who I once was, amen? But we can say even better, I'm not yet who I'm going to be. Amen? So I long for us. I long for this for you. I long for this for us as a church. That we can be the kind of church that is real with our shame. That we don't have to pretend. We don't have to try to cover ourselves up. We don't have to try to make ourselves to be something that we're not but that we can stare with eyes open at the places of failure in our lives, but we can stare at them with hope because we know that we have dignity as children of God. We have dignity as those who bear the image of God and because God is restoring in us the dignity that has been damaged by sin. He is replacing our shame and giving us back wholeness that he intends for us in Christ. So let's embrace that dignity. Let's not try to find it through our own striving and through our own effort or despair of that and deny the fact that we have shame in our lives. Let's just stare open face at the grace that God offers us in Christ. Amen? Father, thank you that you have given us Jesus to be the second Adam who saves us from the failures of the first Adam, saves us from our own failures. Everybody here is Adam and Eve. We've tasted the forbidden fruit. We have traded dignity for shame. We feel it. Each of us feels it if we're honest with ourselves. 
God, help us to rest in the sure work that you do for us in Christ. You have raised us up with him. You have returned our dignity to us, not through any merit or work of our own. And you are even now working to repair in us the dignity that was lost. And you invite us to think of ourselves in hope of what we will be in the future. God, make that true. I pray for those here, Lord, this morning who are particularly captured by shame, who have lost sense of their dignity. Help them to find it, not in themselves, not in their own striving, but help them to find it afresh in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.